Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors at St. Paul's Lutheran Church here in De Pere. And we welcome all who are with us this morning for Bible class, both those in our gymnasium here, also those joining us by KFUO, 850 AM, and really worldwide, uh, KFUO.org. Uh, today, we'll be a, doing what we normally do in this class, and that's take a look at the lessons that are assigned for next Sunday. And so we'll be looking at those in depth, the three lessons assigned. Let's begin with the word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, during this season of Advent, as we prepare to celebrate once again your greatest gift to us, that of your precious Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we give you thanks and praise and glory for your undeserved love for us in sending him to this world to take our place and our punishment for our sin. We thank you also for this opportunity to study together your word. May your Holy Spirit continue to guide and bless our study of that word. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, first of all, a shameless plug uh, for something here at St. Paul's later on this afternoon. Uh, this afternoon at 4 o'clock, uh, our Music at St. Paul's series will be offering a service of sacred music for the time of Christmas. And so again, that's this afternoon at 4 o'clock. Uh, just a wonderful, wonderful uh, presentation and worship opportunity. Uh, choral music, handbells, and the like. So if you are in the vicinity and uh, want to join us this afternoon at 4 o'clock, we would certainly welcome you. Now, for next Sunday, we have the third Sunday in Advent. And this is a special Sunday in a couple of ways. First of all, it has a Latin name called Gaudete Sunday, and that Latin is for the word rejoice. And you will see next Sunday the word rejoice several times, first of all in our Old Testament lesson, but then especially in our epistle lesson from Philippians chapter 4. And to sort of signify that it's a special Sunday, next Sunday is the Sunday that we light the pink or the rose-colored candle on the Advent wreath. And it is, again, a time of joy and rejoicing as we are getting closer and closer to the celebration of our Savior's birth. And uh, again, the readings reflect that. So we'll be filled with joy and smiling next Sunday as we, as we uh, read the lessons. And uh, we'll probably be, uh, I think, preaching on that, on joy uh, this time of the year especially, okay? So with that as some background, kind of keep that in mind as we look at the lessons. First of all, the Old Testament lesson for next Sunday is from Zephaniah, chapter 3. Uh, Zephaniah, well, let, let's read through the lesson first, and then we'll, we'll do a little background and kind of give you a little context for this. So let's read through the whole lesson, then we'll go back and take it apart. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. 
The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, at, that, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. All right. Well, going back, you saw in that first line, uh, rejoice being quite prominent, right, in that first line. Now, Zephaniah is, is prophesying right at about the time that there was a bit of a revival uh, in, amongst God's people. He, he is prophesying during the time of King Josiah, and King Josiah reigned from 640 B.C. to 609 B.C., Okay, so right in that time frame. And Josiah was one of the better kings, we would say. Uh, long story short, there was a scroll found from the book, we think from the book of Deuteronomy. And it was read. And God's people discovered how far away they had strayed from what God had wanted. So King Josiah brings about great reforms. He shuts down uh, many of the pagan uh, false god worship uh, places and it starts uh, bringing about great uh, reform and running things the way God would, would want them run, according to the will of God. Uh, he takes over, he's only eight years old when he takes over as king after his father uh, died, and uh, ends up dying in 609 BC, actually in a battle uh, with the Egyptians. So anyway, he is, he is prophesying at this time. So 640 to 609, right in that time, now, what has already happened in 722 B.C.? The northern kingdom has already been obliterated by Assyria. Okay, so that's, that's a done deal. And so here, Zephaniah is prophesying to the south, to the southern kingdom, to Judah, uh, to repent, basically. And in spite of his prophesying in 586, so about 23 years after he's done, the south is going to fall also, finally fall, to Babylon. It's going to be chipped away at before that. But in 586 B.C., Jerusalem will be destroyed. The temple will be destroyed. So we're kind of in between those two times right now. Okay? The north is gone. South is still there. Josiah is reigning, and there's great reforms. But unfortunately, after he dies, those reforms are going to go out the window, and things are going to go downhill again. So uh, Zephaniah is prophesying with what is going to happen, what's going to take place. Um, what happens, the first, there are only three chapters. We're at, we've got the very last part of the book of Zephaniah here, and this obviously ends on a high note. We go out on a real high note here of hope that God is going to come and be in the midst of his people, and there is great rejoicing. But if we look before that, uh, sometimes you want to... Uh, say make the paint peel on your house read the first two chapters of Zephaniah there's no fun and happiness there let me tell you it's pretty tough stuff and uh, 
So he goes through all of that in the first two chapters of Zephaniah, really condemning the nations, uh, not only God's people, but the nations. And then he zeroes in on God's people. He kind of circles around and, and zeroes in on God's people. But then, all of a sudden, in chapter 3, and it starts just a couple verses before our text. I don't know why they didn't start our text a couple verses earlier. But in Zephaniah, and let me get there. Those of you who have a Bible want to maybe look at this too. Uh, Zephaniah chapter 3, and we'll just go to verse 12 right, right before that. And so God has is, is, been announcing all this judgment and gloom to come that uh, they're going to be taken away. And by the way, uh, Zephaniah is a, is a contemporary of, of the prophet Jeremiah. They're about the same time frame. Okay? And so, uh, but notice here, verse 12, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So in the midst of all this doom and gloom, God is pointing to a faithful remnant, a small faithful remnant that he is going to work through. And they are going to dwell securely. And they are going, there'll be no deceit, no falseness in them whatsoever. So this is how, after two chapters of judgment, doom, and gloom, God ends the book with this way about the promise of he is going to come and there will be a faithful remnant, okay? And you know, throughout the Old Testament, you see that pattern, that there's so many that go astray, so many that, that are, are uh, drifting away, but God always promises and always works, actually, a small, faithful remnant of people. And you know, I, I kind of thought about that in terms of think of the world today, right? So many people, it would seem to us, have you know, no regard for God and no regard for his will or any of his desires, don't really take sin and evil seriously in their own life, and yet God still promises and works through his church, that, that faithful small remnant, and, and he, he's the one who keeps us faithful. It's nothing that we're doing. He's doing it through his word, through his means of grace, and he continues to work through that small, faithful remnant. And in Zephaniah's day, of course, the, the people are going to be brought back from their captivity in Babylon. And God is going to keep that faithful remnant alive. And lo and behold, through that faithful remnant is going to be born the Savior of the world. Okay? So God and, and God will continue to work even beyond that uh, in his church. Now, let's go back to verse 14 then, the part that's actually on our sheet. So we've got this lead up here. Notice there, there's four commands there in that first verse, and they're all good, you know. Sing aloud. Now, this, these are all, all uh, just about synonyms for the word rejoice. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, or, you know, descendants of, of Zion, the church, God's people. Shout, there's the second one. Uh, rejoice, there's the third one. And exalt with all your heart, there's the fourth one. So they got four commands there, you know. In other words, uh, shout it from the mountaintops and rejoice at this, okay, at what's ha what God is going to do. Notice there, what has he done? Why should they rejoice? The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. 
He has cleared away your enemies. So the Lord here, Yahweh, has removed the judgments against you. Is there a way we can say that same thing? Of course, right? The Lord has removed our judgments from us, hasn't he? We can say the very same thing. Uh, not by anything we have done. Notice he is the one who is the acting, acting agent here. He has removed our judgments from us in and through the blood of his son shed on the cross, the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. He has cleared away your enemies. Now, back in that time, the enemies would be nations, of course, who would oppose, including the Babylonians. And uh, God is going to work that in the future. Persia is going to overtake Babylon, and Cyrus, the king of Persia, is going to allow God's people to come back uh, to Jerusalem to rebuild once again. But we think about the ultimate enemies of sin, death, and the grave that God has removed from all of us, hasn't he? He has given us that victory, and we can rejoice and shout for joy in the same way. Now, going on, uh, the king of Israel, namely the Lord, Yahweh, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. And, you know, this is sort of the, the theme, you might say, for this whole section here, the presence of God in your midst and what he is doing for you. As you can imagine, when the people would go off into captivity in Babylon and be taken over, one question they may certainly have, and it's a, it's a very legitimate question, has God abandoned us? You know, are we now on our own? Has God left us now? And, uh, and, and just the opposite is the answer here. No, rejoice. The Lord is in your midst. Uh, fear no evil. Um, even you hear a, don't you hear an echo of Psalm 23 right there, right? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me right? It's that presence of the Lord. And not just that he's there, that's, that's comforting in itself, I guess, but he is there for us, right? He is there fighting for us and will not let us, um, as it says here, experience that evil. So it's, it's the presence of the Lord in the midst of what they are going to be going through. Now, on that day, that's the famous day of the Lord to come, uh, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. And by hands growing weak, it's almost like don't let your hands, uh, don't let your hands and your arms uh, go limp. You know, like when a boxer gives up and puts his hands down like that? That's sort of what it is. In other words, don't, don't grow weary, don't give up, don't let your hands go limp like that. Okay? And uh, isn't, that, isn't that, again, very applicable to us today? Uh, is, aren't there times when we grow weary? I mean, as a church collectively, right? And what's the use? Don't, I mean, he's saying here, don't give up. You know, I am in your midst. Don't let your hands grow limp and just give up in resignation, okay? even with all that's going on around you. Why? Again, notice verse 17. Notice that presence of the Lord there again. The Lord is in your Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And that, that word there, mighty one, it means like a warrior. It's, it's actually a military term. It's like a warrior. Your God is in your midst, and he will save. Okay? Now, notice the rather interesting thing. 
he will rejoice over you with gladness. Now, isn't that kind of strange? Who's doing the rejoicing here? God is. This mighty warrior is rejoicing over us. And, of course, it's not us by ourselves. It's what he has done in and through us. But, you know, there's, there's just a few places like that in the scriptures where it talks about God actually rejoicing over us, right? Remember where Jesus said there is joy in heaven over what? One sinner who repents, right? And uh, I don't know if we ever think about that too much, that God is actually rejoicing or filled with joy over us and over sinners who repent. It's his will. It's what he wants. It's what he delights in. And he just is, his people here have, have repented. They've come back. And he is rejoicing now uh, over them. That's quite a concept to really think about. He will rejoice over you with gladness. It's almost like he will rejoice with you with rejoicing. He will, notice here the nice, he will quiet you by his love. That word quiet can also mean soothe. He will soothe you with his love. In other words, it's almost like it's going to be a healing, a calming, almost a contrast to the rejoicing. But he will soothe you with his love. He will exalt or, again, rejoice over you with loud singing. Okay? And uh, now, verse 18, uh, just about everybody will say is very uh, challenging Hebrew to translate. So uh, I think even the best translators will have to say, uh, this is kind of a stab at this, okay? It's, it's very tough to, to the, not only the words, but the word order and what exactly is being said here. And this is the way the ESV does it. I, I think it's pretty good. I will gather those of you who mourn, or who, uh, you can say groan or grieve for the festival. In other words, those people who are off in, and uh, are being overtaken in Babylon, I will gather you from the fest for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. You will no longer be um, downcasts. Okay? Behold, at that time I will deal with your oppressors or those who afflict you, like the Babylonians, like others, and I will save the lame, or it literally means the limping one. I will save the limping one and gather the outcast or the one who has been pushed aside. Okay? So... And the, the lame and those who were pushed aside in Bible times were always looked down upon. And just think about how many times didn't Jesus associate with those who were considered to be the outcasts in their day, right? The, the lepers, the, the poor, the, the lame, uh, even the, the tax collectors, and Jesus is there associating with them. Same kind of thing here. God is going to be the, the one who's going to bring rejoicing even to those who are the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. So they may, they may suffer shame right now. That's going to be changed into praise and renown. Notice in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. This, this great time of gathering. At the time when I gather you together. Well, I, I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore, restore your fortunes before your eyes. And that's, that's the way Zephaniah closes, right there. So it's a great message of, of hope. And you see there that God is saying there's going to be this gathering that he is going to bring about. 
And we can say, well, that happened the first time when he brings his people back from their captivity in Babylon. It happens again when Christ comes to this earth. And Jesus, remember, said, when I am lifted up, I will draw, draw all men to myself. And there's going to come the ultimate fulfillment on the last day, when Christ returns on that great day of the Lord. And remember, all are gathered before him on that final day. Okay? But prior to that, he's already gathered us together through water and word and holy baptism. Right? So you can see right away that I said next Sunday is the Sunday of rejoicing, Gaudete Sunday. And the Old Testament lesson starts us off on that track. Okay? That it's... it's after a couple of blistering uh, chapters of law and judgment, here Zephaniah ends with a great upswing of rejoicing. It's going to be time for great, great rejoicing for the people. Okay? All right, let's stop there before we go on to Philippians. Any either questions, comments about any of this? No? All right, let's go on to Philippians 4. Uh, one of my favorite sections of Scripture, I don't know if it is for you or not, but again, you get the rejoicing. In fact, notice the first line, you can't, you can't miss it. But it says there, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All right. So you obviously heavy on the rejoicing here, and Philippians is in general, but this is uh, one of the main sections. We think Paul actually wrote this letter. It is one of his um, uh, prison epistles and was written, we think, at about 60 A.D. when he was in prison in Rome. This was the house arrest prison. This wasn't the, the one that's going to come later, at around 67, when under, we think, under Nero, when he actually will end up being uh, executed. So this is the first one, but he is nonetheless, he's in prison. Does that sound kind of ironic? He's, he's, in, uh, he's in captivity, and what's he telling everybody to do? Rejoice. <laughs> kind of flies in the face of uh, logic there, doesn't it? And now, now notice, is Paul, is Paul, in, remember there was a song here uh, several, some years ago, Don't Worry, Be Happy, remember that one? Kind of upbeat song, Don't Worry, Be Happy, no matter what you're, is that what Paul is really saying here? Just kind of have an upbeat uh, personality and, and uh, just be happy. Is that what he's saying? Probably not. Notice, it's not just be happy, but it's rejoice, and it's not just rejoice, but it's rejoice what? In the Lord. Those are three very important words, aren't they? That it's not just kind of we lift our spirits, we kind of, you know, be happy and cheery. No, it's rejoicing in the Lord, knowing that whatever else is going on in our life or around us, we still can rejoice, okay? Now, I wouldn't, I, I got to say, uh, and there's a, there's a sense in which this would be true, but I don't think it'd be a very wise thing to do, that uh, somebody has just been told they have a very serious diagnosis in the hospital room, and you go running in there and say, well, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now, again, there's a sense in which that's true, but probably not the best time to be saying that, right? 
uh, that's kind of the thing that we rejoice not only if our outward circumstances are all great and everything is lined up perfectly in our life, but as I say, no matter what is going on around us in our outside circumstances, when you stop and think about it, we still have reason for rejoicing. And it's a reason that no one can take away from us. It's a reason that, that God has given us in and through his son, Jesus Christ. And we, we're about to celebrate that reason once again, welcoming him uh, as he comes as our gift. So it's rejoice in the Lord always, okay? And again, I will say rejoice. Paul says there, <clears throat> let your reasonableness be made known. So Christians not only should be filled with joy, but this reasonableness can be sort of patience, forbearance, and thoughtfulness. So it's not just a blind, sort of haphazard, be happy, you know, be gushing with, with all kinds of the joy. But, you know, also reasonableness and thoughtfulness and forbearance. Let that be known to, every, to everyone. And then notice, what is, the Lord is what? At hand. The Lord is near, or you could even say the Lord is, is in our midst again. There's that idea of the presence, just like we had back in Zephaniah, which causes us again to have reason for rejoicing, right? Now, how would we say that the Lord is with us today? How could we say that very same thing? The Lord is at hand. Where is he at hand today? The word, okay, the word read and proclaimed. Where else? Sacrament of the altar, right? Every, every Sunday here at St. Paul's, okay? And, of course, in baptism as well, we, uh, the, the faith in. And remember, uh, Christ, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, what? There am I in the midst of them, right? So we have that very same reason for rejoicing and that very same reason uh, for, for being happy and, and no matter what our circumstances are. Now, verse 6. What goes through your mind when you read verse 6? Do not be anxious in anything. So what, what goes through your mind when you read that? Hard to do. Yeah, that can be hard to do. In fact, we may even say something or think something like, well, Paul, that's easy for you to say, right? You're not facing what I'm facing in my life or in my family or in my uh, vocation or in my circumstances in life. But let's stop and think about that for a moment. Uh, did Paul know what it was to be in situations that would cause anxiety in someone's life? Yeah. We won't take the time to read it here, but sometime read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and Paul has a catalog of things that uh, he has experienced as a result of being an apostle. Uh, shipwrecked, beaten with rods, left for dead. So we don't want to, this is not Paul from some ivory tower, you know, in fact, he's in captivity, but he in his life knew what it was to be in situations that would cause anxiety and would cause stress. So he's saying here, don't be anxious about anything. So in other words, not being uh, nervous or, or, or uh, doubtful or worried about things, but notice in everything, 
by prayer, that's sort of the broad term, prayer in general, and supplication, and that's the more uh, specific asking or requests. And notice there, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, it's kind of interesting. Why would you think Paul would say, you know, if you're in the midst of something that's going to cause you anxiety and stress, why do you think Paul throws in there, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God? Why do you think he would throw in there, with thanksgiving? Nancy? Yes. Yes. When you start thinking about all the ways that God has blessed you and all the things for which you have to be thankful, then it may dawn on you that this is the same God who's been with me and has blessed me all this way up in the past to whom I am praying now with whatever this situation is, right? So there's, a, there's a, almost an unstoppable process you have to go through and, you know, this is a, you'll notice many times when we pray uh, in church or even informally in before meetings and so on, we kind of follow that pattern many times, don't we? We start with thanking God for at least one thing, if not many more things he has done for us, and acknowledging that. And then we ask him for whatever it is that's on our mind that we're concerned with here in the now. Uh, and again, that, I think that can't help but have us think about this God who has blessed me with so much in the past is not somehow going to just turn his back on me at this point, right? Um, there's another, I, did, I, I just heard this a couple of years ago, and I never thought about this before. But if you pray for these things with thanksgiving, someone said, well, you know, or maybe I read this, that it's almost as though you're thanking God before he actually delivers on the prayer. In other words, you are praying with the confidence already that it's a done deal. He's going he's gonna to answer this prayer, and you're thanking him already with thanksgiving for what you're praying for. And, and maybe that's another good way. I think both of those are kind of, I don't think it's an either or. I think both of those uh, can be applied. And now let's stop for a moment and just review. When we pray to God, uh, is it correct to say, well, I prayed and prayed and prayed, but God didn't answer my prayer? And what we're saying there, what a person is saying there is he didn't answer my prayer, what? The way I wanted it to be answered, right? We would say that God does hear and respond to every prayer. And there's, we'll go back to confirmation class here for a second. There's the three ways, right? Yeah, yes, if what we are asking for is good for us now, right? No, if what we're asking for is never going to be good for us. And wait, if what we're asking for is not good for us now, but will be in the future, right? And often liken that to a little child who is asking their parent for something. And uh, let's say there's a burning candle there on the table and the child is all enthralled with it. What reaches out to grab and the parent does what? Grabs, grabs a hand and pulls it back. Child cannot understand at that point why, why mom or dad is not letting me do what I want to do here. And of course, mom and dad know better. And you know, I liken that to many times in our lives when it comes to the things we are praying for, 
that we sometimes think it's just got to be this. How could it not be this, God? And yet, sometimes don't you, you know, those of you that are a little more experienced in life, don't you look back and, and maybe say to yourself 20 years later, boy, am I glad that I, I didn't get what I was praying for in that case, right? Whether it's maybe a, a job that you had, had been offered or uh, any number of things. You know, you look back later and say, boy, I can really see God's hand in this now at the time. I thought, sure, that's the way it should be, and it didn't go that way, and I'm, gl I'm sure glad it didn't, because if it didn't, I wouldn't have, you know. Um, maybe you're in high school, and uh, you know, you're, you wanna, you're praying and praying and praying to get into this one university, and you don't end up getting accepted, but you go to a different school, meet your spouse, uh, and, and there, there you go for the rest of your life, and you say, looking back on that, boy, I'm sure glad I didn't get accepted at that school. <laughs> I would have never met you know, my spouse. And uh, so there, there are all kinds of times like that in life where we are praying, and we, and we should pray with faith and with trust and assurance that God hears our prayers, okay? But now there's also a, an important uh, distinction that we make. When we pray for physical things like getting into a certain college or getting a certain job or any physical type of thing, we many times will add a phrase if it be your will, or something along those lines. Because when we're praying for physical things, we don't always know what God's will is. And so we're in effect saying to him, this is what I want, but nonetheless, if it be your will. I'm recognizing that this may or may not be your will. I don't know that for sure. And so, uh, you know, even on Sundays when we are praying for people who are ill in the hospital, we many times will add the phrase, if it be your will, or according to your will grant health and healing. It's not that we don't like the person that, that's in the hospital <laughs> wishing them any harm. We're just acknowledging, again, we don't know if it is God's will in this case, okay? And now, when we're praying for spiritual blessings, though, like a strong faith and to be encouraged and so on, we don't add that phrase. Why? Because we know that's God's will for us and because he said it in his word that's how we know it is his will so we don't add the phrase if it be your will grant to me a strong faith or allow me to stand uh, firm until the end we know that's his will so we don't bother throwing in that phrase okay all right so that's just a little review on on some of the prayers but notice there with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to god and the peace of god which surpasses all understanding will guard. And that word guard, it means literally to stand as a sentinel or to stand as a guard uh, for, at your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now let's, just for a second there, the, that peace of God that passes all understanding. Does that mean then that we are never going to have problems or cares or concerns in life that life is just going to be peaceful and placid and we will have no problems no worries in life no that's obviously not it right i mean if that were it everybody would want to be a christian just to what have a easy going life right and and it would be more self-centered <laughs> i'll be a christian so i can have an easy life so in fact you look around and sometimes doesn't it seem as though some Christians and some families in particular at times seem to have way more 
in, in, the, in the way of hardships and just really tough things to get through in their lives from an earthly standpoint, you know, whether it's, whether it's illness or, you know, just tragedy in their, in their families and in their lives. But again, this peace of God that passes all understanding doesn't mean you're not going to have any problems, but it means that in the midst of whatever those things are in your life, again, you have a peace or a sense of well-being uh, and calm confidence in God and in especially his son, Jesus Christ. And that's something that, again, it passes all understanding. People can't many times understand how Christians can have that sense of peace and well-being even in the midst of some very, very difficult things in life, like death, for example, right? And how Christians can forgive people who have uh, acted in at least careless, if not in, in intentional ways to cause injury or death to a family member, how Christians can forgive those people in the midst of that kind of thing. And so again, this, this is a sense of peace that only God can give. Uh, you know, as Jesus says, uh, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you? And um, so that's that peace that passes all understanding, and it's a gift to us from God. And that's a reason for rejoicing uh, next Sunday, because that, that Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, is getting closer and closer on the third Sunday in Advent, okay? All right, let's take a moment here before we get into the gospel lesson. Any comments or questions on this? Oh, yes. Is it, yeah, is it wrong to pray for miracles? I would say no, as long as we're, again, recognizing what we had said, that, that God is going to answer this prayer, and he's going to answer it in the, in the way that is best, according to his will. Yeah, there's, there's nothing wrong at all with, you know, let's say a case where somebody is facing just staggering medical odds, you know, of survival on this earth, and we pray that, Lord, if it be your will, restore this person to health. I, I've certainly done that in hospital rooms. And again, we recognize that it's, it's God's will in the end that we want. And, and what we're really saying there is what? Turn our will to your will, you know? That's, we're, all, we're actually kind of praying for something in our, inside of us, aren't we, at that point? That um, if this is not your will, let, let my will adjust to that or bend bend to your will here okay and that's a hard thing isn't it it's easy to sit here and talk about it theoretically but uh, you know when you're there in the hospital and it's your loved one that's laying there or it's your loved one that's been in the auto accident or whatever the circumstances might be around it it's, it's a lot harder uh, to, to let go of that will and recognize that God's will is going to be done okay all right great comment any others all right, now let's go to the gospel lesson, which not so much rejoicing here, I've got to say, in the gospel lesson. Uh, in fact, John the Baptist is in prison in a gospel lesson for next Sunday. And uh, anybody recall how he uh, ended up behind, uh, behind bars? He objected to, remember, the incestuous uh, marriage relationship that Herodias had with Herod, right? And he had the nerve to object to that, uh, for which he got locked up, okay? And so 
you know, uh, here we, we had all this, uh, you know, that the, the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah and announces the birth. He's going to have a son. Elizabeth's going to have a son. And then we get the announcement to Mary. We get the announcement to Joseph. And, uh, you know, things are, are going along great. And then all of a sudden now, uh, you know, they've come. Jesus has been baptized, and we're off on the ministry. And all of a sudden, John's in prison. And from John's perspective, certainly, things just aren't looking like we thought they were going to be when the Messiah comes, right? I'm behind, I'm behind bars here. Something's not quite right with this picture. So let's pick up and read here. And we won't, uh, I don't think we'll have the time to go through the whole thing first. Let's just go through it verse by verse. We're in Luke 7, and we're starting at verse 18, for those at home. Luke 7, starting at verse 18. The disciples of John... So what do, you, what do you pick up right away? John had disciples as well. John the Baptist had disciples as well. Reported all these things to him. What are all these things? Well, right before this in Luke chapter 7, we got two things that happened. One, Jesus healed the centurion's servant. Remember that account? The centurion is a Roman soldier, a Gentile who has a servant back home who is very ill. And remember, he comes to Jesus and asks him, uh, intercedes for his servant back home. And remember, he says that, uh, you know, I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof, but merely speak the word and my servant will be healed. And it's an amazing thing. Jesus marvels at the faith of a Gentile. And says, not even in Israel have I found such faith. That is a huge verse in Luke chapter 7. Then right after that, Jesus goes through a town called Nain, N-A-I-N, and raises a widow's son in Nain. And so then John's disciples here, John the Baptist's disciples, are reporting all these things to John. Well, John's thinking that on the one hand, probably that's great. But here I sit, you know, this is not quite the way I have pictured things. So look at what he does. Uh, verse 19, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And in the original language, that you is very emphatic. It's first, you. Are you the one, in other words, you, or are we to look for another? Now, I'll just tell you this, there are two main theories here on this whole question process from John the Baptist to Jesus. The early church fathers were very reluctant to want to even acknowledge or allow that John may have been doubting here at this, or at least questioning, at least questioning. And so their theory was, well, John wasn't doubting whatsoever. He just wanted those guys to ask that question so that Jesus could affirm it for them, not for me. And the other side, of course, is that, is that John, being a human being, you know, uh, was wondering at this point. He is sitting in prison. Is this really the one or not? So um, we'll never, I guess, know the answer to that, but those are the two theories. Uh, it's interesting that Luke has this question posed twice. He's got John asking his disciples to go and ask this, and then he records how they went and asked it. 
So that kind of lends more support to maybe John really was. You know, Luke is telling us John really was uh, questioning or wondering here at least. So uh, let's see, verse 20. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, isn't that, the, isn't that the key question that all people, whether you are John the Baptist uh, or not, that is the key question, isn't it? Is this Jesus of Nazareth the one, the one, the promised Messiah, or is there another? And, of course, the um, Orthodox Jews especially uh, today uh, would answer that no, he was not the one. Uh, we are still awaiting the Messiah. Now, it's interesting. How could Jesus have answered this question? What could he have said? Very matter-of-factly, yep, go back, tell John, I'm the one. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. On, well, yeah, John points to him. Remember in John 1... Uh, 28, 29, something like that. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, points to Jesus in, in what seems to be a very clear confession. Uh, and it had certainly been revealed to him. So, yeah, this is a rather, you know, it's rather, uh, some ways, problematic. Um, but now, so Jesus could have turned around and said to him immediately, yes, John, or, uh, go back and tell John, I am the one. But notice what he chooses to do here. He chooses instead to go back to the prophet, primarily the prophet Isaiah, and lay out for them that what is the Messiah predicted to do when he comes. In other words, when, when the chosen one comes, what have the prophets said he's going to be doing? Okay? So let me read just a couple verses here, and then I want to uh, take you, those of you who have a Bible, we'll turn to Isaiah and look at a couple passages. So, are you, uh, verse uh, 21. In that hour, he, Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them. So now Jesus answers them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. So what has Jesus just done here? He's recited to them the things that the Messiah is predicted to have done when he's going to come and the things that he's doing. In other words, that the shoe fits, right? He's it. Now let me just show you a couple of these. We could look at a bunch of them, but let's just go to those of you who have a Bible. Isaiah 26. We'll start there. Isaiah 26, and we want to look at verse 19, Isaiah 26, 19. <clears throat> this is a beautiful Old Testament passage dealing with the resurrection. And, you know, many times people say, oh, there's, there's no resurrection talk in the Old Testament. That's just New Testament. Oh, no. There's, there's a number of places. Notice verse 19, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. 
For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Isn't that something? In the Old Testament, 700 years before Christ walked this earth, the prediction that the dead are going to rise. Well, what had Jesus just done in the town of Nain? Raise a dead person. Hmm. Kind of looks familiar, doesn't it? Now let's take a look at, uh, we'll just go three more chapters, Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29, and we want to look at verse 18 here. Okay, 29, 18. In that day, in other words, the day of the Lord, when the Lord comes, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. And what has Jesus been doing? Giving hearing to the deaf, sight to the blind. Okay? Uh, 35, Isaiah 35, and let's look at verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So again, you've got deaf hearing, blind seeing, uh, uh, lame leaping like a deer. Okay, And again, that's all that Jesus has been doing. Um, we'll skip one. Let's just go to one more. Uh, I'll skip one here. Let's go to Isaiah 61. And this one has special significance. And we'll look at uh, just verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And this, again, is referring to the day of the Lord when the Messiah is going to come. Now, why is this significant? In Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes to the synagogue, and they open up, remember, they open up the scroll, and they, he reads these verses rolls it back up the scroll, sits down, and what does he say? Pretty short sermon. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So he's saying, it's right here, right now. Isaiah 61 is right here. It's me. Okay? So uh, in, in this way, same way right here, the same thing he did in the synagogue, he's doing here with the disciples of John the Baptist. Go back and tell them what you see. Everything that was predicted of the Messiah is what I'm doing. And tell him you saw that. So in other words, not to doubt. He is the one. All right? Then verse 23, And blessed is the one who is not offended or caused to stumble by me. And to some people, uh, for some people, Jesus, they, they stumble over Jesus, so to speak. They do not, do not believe. They do not receive him as the Messiah. 
They fact say he could not be. It's ridiculous. Don't tell me he's God's uh, chosen one. And Jesus is saying there, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You're not stumbling over me. So now, verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? Now, these, these are all these crowds who were coming out to be baptized by John the Baptist and to, and to hear him preach, uh, frankly, too. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? And we think that's just a sort of a saying, you know, a, a reed that is blown back and forth by the wind, meaning somebody who vacillates and somebody who's just a yes man, uh, no, no, somebody that's not very definite at all in their opinions. Well, that wasn't John. John was, was just the opposite. He was stalwart and, you know, just intense. Um, verse 25, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Well, we know he wasn't, right? Camel's hair. Uh, behold, those who are, addressed in, are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. In other words, not out here in the wilderness. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. So he was a prophet, but even that's not adequate enough. Um, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Does that sound a little familiar? It was in today's Old Testament lesson from Malachi 3. I think I, I sometimes wonder, we should have had uh, switched to this Old Testament lesson on next Sunday. But he's saying, John is the one uh, who, of whom Malachi prophesies in Malachi 3.1. He is the messenger that's going before the Messiah's face to prepare the way for him. Okay? Then going on. Whoops, we got to scoot here. We got time. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, and that's probably, we think, probably because of his association with Christ and all that had been revealed to him. He's the last of the great prophets and even more than a prophet. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The one who has all of his sins forgiven and in repentance is blessed beyond measure, is greater than he. Now notice the parenthetical statement here, starting in verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Remember last week we talked about the baptism of John. That is not a, a we don't think a Trinitarian baptism, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but a baptism of repentance. In other words, it accompanied repenting of your sin and turning to God and preparation for receiving Christ. Uh, verse 30. So the tax collect, you know, the tax collectors and all those were the ones who repented and turned to God and believed. Uh, verse 30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. In other words, what God wanted for them, namely that they would repent and believe not having been baptized by him. The, the Pharisees and the, and the uh, lawyers, they would refuse to be baptized by John. They would refuse to repent. They didn't think they needed repentance. They had Abraham as their father. Okay? 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. So it's kind of like, Children sitting by the side and 
They're, they're bantering back and forth. That's sort of like their attacks of Jesus. You know, meaningless chatter back and forth. Uh, he's comparing that generation to. Um, now, this is kind of an interesting one. We played the flute for you, in other words, the, the, this generation, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. So, this, again, it's kind of hard to, hard to interpret, but kind of the idea of they heard what Jesus and the message was, but they weren't taking it in, and they weren't participating. Uh, the dirge you can almost think of as law when Jesus and John the Baptist talked about repenting, and they did not weep. And then we played the flute as almost maybe the gospel, and you did not dance. In other words, you just didn't receive it. You didn't participate. You, you were just uh, deaf to it. Okay? And then uh, verse 33, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. He was a, a Nazarite, it seems. Gabriel had prophesied that. Uh, and you say he has a demon. So they were saying John must have a demon, must be crazy. Verse 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So that's what they were concluding about Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees, that he's a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, the, the outcasts of the day. And then finally, verse 35, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. In other words, what is wise proves to be true in what happens down the line. Okay? So not a lot of joy in the gospel lesson for next Sunday, but we got joy in the, in the Old Testament lesson and in the epistle lesson. So remember, next Sunday, Gaudete Sunday, pink candle gets lighted, and we rejoice. All right? All right, let's close in with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.